welcome to the Parley podcast at the Hindu. I'm Sohasini Heather. This month, Sri Lankan protesters pushed out the government of Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksa, certainly forced uh, the hand of the president there. But that isn't the only big political non-electoral change in the neighborhood in 2021-22. Just a month ago, it was Pakistan. Some months before that, Nepal. And then there were these two changes by force that we saw in 2021 in Myanmar and then in Afghanistan. How should India tackle the changes in its region? With me, two of our foremost experts on the history and the diplomacy of South Asia, former Foreign Secretary, former Chair of the National Security Advisory Board, Sham Saran, is an author and his latest book, How China Sees India, is just out. And we're joined by Professor Srinath Raghavan. He's a professor at Ashoka University, author of several books, including India's War, The Making of Modern South Asia. Uh, And it's a real pleasure to welcome you on the Hindus, the Parley podcast. Thank you, Ambassador Saran. Thank you, Professor Raghavan. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to be here, Sohasni. I want to begin by asking both of you, and maybe Ambassador Saran, you could go first. Uh, Are these changes, and you know, I listed five countries in South Asia that have seen what I call non-electoral political changes. Uh, Are these changes in these five countries connected in any way? Is it because there have been similar political cultures or is it because they're all facing the strain of the economic crisis in every country of the region? I would say a bit of both, but perhaps uh, I would place more you know, emphasis on really the external environment, a much more challenging external environment, which all of us are uh, confronting. I know there has been two years of uh, COVID uh, and the disruptions that it has caused, not only in terms of, uh, you know, uh, our economies, but also uh, social disruptions. Uh, You have also uh, more uh, recently uh, the impact of, crises uh, taking place in uh, Europe. And given the fact that we are today such a globalized and interconnected world, and South Asia is not an exception, uh, I'm not surprised that uh, each of our countries uh, has had to you know, uh, deal with uh, these rather unexpected challenges. And in some cases, you know, uh, several challenges have come uh, together <laughs> to cause a kind of a perfect uh, storm. Um, I would also say that uh, a certain brittleness of the politics of some countries has made, uh, you know, the whole effort to cope with these kind of external challenges uh, much more difficult. So uh, to that extent, uh, uh, you know, the aspect that you mentioned, is there something in terms of the nature of political dispensations in these countries, uh, which can perhaps uh, explain Uh, the severity of the challenge that they are facing. And in that respect, I would say that, yes, uh, the kind of uh, brittleness, as I said, uh, of these uh, countries uh, to deal with these uh, challenges is one very important factor. 
Right, very interesting. Professor Raghavan, uh, there is on the one side, and Ambassador uh, Sutton has put it maybe diplomatically when he says there's a brittleness, but essentially this idea that uh, South Asia has turned in a much more authoritarian direction. If you look at any of the EIU indexes, Freedom House indexes, South Asia is there declining year on year when it comes to the, the, the quality of its democracies. Um, do you think that is uh, more responsible, less responsible, equally responsible as the economic crisis that we just spoke about? I think the political brittleness that Ambassador Sarar referred to and the sort of democratic backsliding that, you know, all these reports have been talking about forms the underlying condition for the crisis uh, across the region that we are seeing. Uh, there has certainly been a erosion of democratic norms, procedures. There has been an attempt by executives in various countries to assert their control over other agencies uh, within the state uh, to sort of, you know, evolve power more towards the center away from uh, federal sort of arrangements and so on. And all of this has meant that, you know, the style of politics that now seems to prevail across the region is a certain form of authoritarian populism, if I may put it that way. And when you overlay this kind of a change across the region over the past few years with the economic crisis, and the economic crisis is an important one. Uh, in fact, I would say that the only parallel that I can think of in recent history is the 1970s, when we had a similar kind of a global economic shock triggered by, you know, the uh, oil sort of embargoes uh, after the Arab-Israeli War in 1973, which had effects across practically every South Asian country, including India. And uh, I think we are seeing a similar sort of a set of linked problems coming out of this current economic situation, coming out of the pandemic, the Ukraine war and other factors. And when you put these together, which is to say a democratic backsliding, a turn towards authoritarian populism alongside an economic crisis, then what you find is that there are very similar kinds of protests and forms of popular mobilization uh, which are taking place uh, across the region. So I think, yes, there is something to be said about the sort of pan-South Asian quality of what we are seeing now. Though obviously, you know, the specifics of the political economy of each country tends to differ. All right. And certainly there is the Indian case itself where we are seeing signs of democratic backsliding. We are seeing signs of an economic crisis, yet it is uh, no way uh, at the juncture that we have seen maybe the smaller South Asian countries uh, already facing these crises. But we've seen these similar challenges and both of you have spoken about the fact that there are common threads in uh, the countries facing the COVID pan pandemic, uh, the global downturn, and now the impact, the inflationary impact of the Ukraine war. And yet, uh, apart from a few furtive uh, attempts, it seems there's been no collective response to these challenges. Uh, Ambassador Sarn, would you agree that actually there is a failure in this of South Asia becoming some kind of a collective in responding to so many similar crises? Well, here it, this is uh, something which has been a continuing uh, challenge, you know, how to try and fashion some kind of a, you know, cooperative, collaborative, regional uh, response uh, to very common uh, challenges that uh, South Asia has been facing. And in that respect, uh, you know, the only country which can actually take the lead uh, in order to formulate uh, collaborative responses, mobilize that kind of uh, regionalism is only India. And uh, I think the uh, great, uh, to me, a great uh, um, sort of absence uh, 
uh, is precisely of that uh, of that uh, you know uh, awareness number one and the willingness uh, to perform uh, that role now you know uh, you see that india uh, has essentially it seems given up on sark um attention now focus much more on uh, on on bimstay um there have been yes sub regional you know cooperation under say the bbi and that is the bhutan bangladesh india nepal you know forum uh, but it is partial you know and uh, so um, as far as the regional response is concerned uh, i am afraid uh, that simply uh, does not uh, exist even the limited kind of consultative process that we used to have before even that uh, is uh, missing uh so uh, this is a failure uh, there is no other way to to describe it uh because um, you know if india does not take the lead it will not happen that's the way it is we are now as you can see uh, working much more on the bilateral level uh, rather than trying to see whether there are regional dimensions also which can be explored interesting shrinath would you agree I would agree in terms of what Amadha Saran is saying about uh, the absence of leadership of India in this context and why that matters. Uh, but I also think that it's important to point out that you know there is a wider deficit as well. I mean, if you compare, say, the 2000s with the 2010s uh, and you know the decades since, to me, what is also striking is the level to which even civil society interaction across the region has considerably dipped. uh i think you know there was never a time when you could say that you know there was a pan south asian kind of uh, you know civil society interaction which was very strong but certainly even from the previous sort of levels we have seen a significant erosion of this and an inward turn uh, amongst um, civil society organizations so we are at a you know curious juncture where neither high politics nor uh, civil society interaction seems to be going on uh, but what is to me striking is that you know popular movements and mobilizations do seem to be learning a little bit from uh, each other i mean for instance the current protests in sri lanka clearly have taken a lesson or two out of what happened with the farmers protests in india so there are these kinds of learnings which are happening but absent uh, high political and civil society engagement there is clearly a vacuum in the region all right but interestingly if you turn that around uh, unlike in the past when there was a lot of talk of india's muscular diplomacy whether it was in sri lanka whether it was the blockade in nepal whether it has been the tough talking with pakistan unlike in the past in these cases and we've seen these five changes in the region india is not being blamed india is not in any way being held responsible even by the conspiracy theorists of the region uh, is this about a shift in diplomacy is it about deft diplomacy or does it point to something more difficult for india is it is it about irrelevance professor raghavan you're certainly right i mean i think there was uh, a dynamic where many of the changes in the region uh, used to be sort of traced back to some kind of an indian hand uh but i think you know part of the problem as far as india is concerned uh and this is something that ambassador saran alluded to earlier is i think we have been far too reactive in the way that we have thought about it you know there has been a lot of talk about saying we want to put neighborhood first uh but both our conception of what we consider to be the neighborhood and what we are willing to do there i think has been far too much driven by involvement of external players like china uh in a sense we have been in a reactive mode for pretty much the you know bulk of the period uh, of the current government and i think that has in some ways uh you know ensured that yes you know we we've kind of managed to not make too many foolish moves though we have made steps from time to time 
But at the same time, you know, we've ceased to be the kind of proactive player within the region that we historically were and should be. All right. Um, Ambassador Sarin, do you think neighborhood first was the right step by the Modi government and it continues to adhere to it or has it been a little hollow? Well, neighborhood first is not just uh, Modi policy. I mean, neighborhood first, uh, you know, is, is something that was uh, inaugurated uh, even uh, in the UPA uh, government. Um, so that is that is uh, something which is a, a continuity. And I do think that the policy approach itself uh, is uh, a very sound approach uh, to the neighborhood. You know, I keep repeating, and maybe I should repeat again, that uh, I have always said that unless you get your periphery right, unless you are able to manage your neighborhood uh, well, uh, you cannot in an optimal manner, you know, either pursue a regional policy in Asia or even a global policy. You know, it will always be, you know, drawn back to the subcontinent uh, because of, you know, uh, if there is a if there is unrest or crisis taking place in your immediate neighborhood, you know, that draws you back. Uh, so uh, the uh, approach uh, that we have is in executing good neighborhood, uh, the kind of resources that we should devote to that, the kind of attention which we should devote to our neighbors, uh, that is something which is, uh, you know, leaves leaves uh, something to be uh, desired. Um, our, our, our attention to the, uh, you know, neighborhood in some sense continues to be somewhat episodic. You know, so if something happens, uh, if some crisis occurs, then we get very uh, involved with that. Uh, when things, uh, you know, improve, relatively speaking, uh, our attention then then uh, slips from from uh, the, the neighborhood. Uh, so you need continuous, high-level, multi-level engagement with the neighborhood uh, to really make certain that your good neighborhood policy yields the results that you want. All right. Um, you, in fact, said that, you know, there is a kind of vacuum of leadership in South Asia. So if I could turn to uh, the other powers that are maybe making some moves, the first is, of course, China. In a sense, COVID made China close its boundaries. Its own struggle with the pandemic has certainly cast doubts about the Chinese system, about Chinese abilities. But on the other hand, China began a new outreach of sorts, uh, which was considered in the past uh, it would never have done, where it actually made an outreach to South Asia. Practically every country except for India was included in this plan for a, a COVID response, poverty alleviation center that they set up, distribution of vaccines. Even a country like Bhutan has taken Chinese vaccines uh, over there when India had to stop its supply. Um, do you think that is uh, continues to be a kind of a challenge to India. How is India fared in a sense uh, in terms of its pushback to China in the neighborhood? You know, one thing that is very clear is that China has far more resources to deploy uh, that uh, India than India has. So there is a certain asymmetry in terms of what resources that we can we can really. Uh, you know, devote to our good neighborhood uh, policy. But uh, having said that, I would also like to point out that if you are looking at what has been happening over the last several months, uh, one, because of Chinese preoccupation with its own challenges, in particular, what is happening with, uh, you know, this zero COVID policy, 
the economic disruptions which are taking place. There is a, even a certain degree of, you know, political, uh, I won't say unrest, but uh, certain political, you know, stirrings which are <laughs> taking place uh, in China. So China is very much preoccupied with that domestic uh, situation. It is also today very much preoccupied with the consequences and the anticipated <laughs> consequences uh, of the Ukraine war. Has it made a wrong bet uh, in, you know, allying itself in a sense uh, much more closely with uh, Russia? So because of these preoccupations uh, and because of the economic disruptions, the attention being given to not just South Asia, but to uh, other parts of the world as well, uh, this is something which uh, is, is beginning, to, beginning to show up. Uh, also, I would say that uh, in South Asia itself, uh, there is a certain uh, new wariness about, you know, the China connection. Uh, it may be unfair to hold China responsible for, for example, the economic crisis which is uh, taking place in Sri Lanka. Uh, it may be unfair also to say that, uh, you know, uh, China's uh, Belt and Road project or the CPEC in Pakistan has not quite worked out the way it was supposed to. It was supposed to be a game changer for Pakistan. It has not been a game changer, you know. It has it has uh, created its own adverse, uh, you know, uh, consequences. So there is a certain kind of a. Uh, I won't want to exaggerate it, but there is a certain wariness about about China, and uh, to uh, that extent, I have also argued that perhaps if we play our cards well, uh, there is a certain opening, not a very big opening, but there is a certain opening for India to emerge as a kind of a, you know, security provider, as a kind of an economic support uh, to the countries which are in the middle of the crisis. So, uh, you know, perhaps that's one way of looking at it. Right. Uh, Professor Raghavan, that question has been asked about China in many ways and how China has emerged two years into the pandemic, also two years after it began its transgressions at the line of actual control. And uh, Ambassador Sarin is making the point that, in fact, China has suffered reputationally and perhaps in terms of the bets it has made. Uh, but uh, on the other side, some would say that China is a beneficiary. It is no longer enemy number one when it comes to the West. The West is certainly, uh, even though they might make uh, statements about China, are wholly focused on dealing with Russia. Uh, and uh, in a sense, in the Asian context and as a result, the South Asian context, China has fewer rivals. Where would you see China vis-a-vis -vis two years ago? In the short term, I think the Chinese are certainly in a tight spot, as Ambassador Saran was explaining. Uh, I think the COVID and its uh, economic consequences for China are pretty grim at this point of time. Uh, the internal political sort of situation, especially with the party congress uh, and the centenary of the CCP, etc., has kept them quite preoccupied. Uh, but if you look ahead, you know, if you look, say, towards the rest of the decade, I would imagine that actually we'll see a more uh, sort of outward-looking China, especially in the areas of the Belt and Road. See, the BRI certainly has taken a hit because the Eurasian part of it now is in sort of, you know, free fall. Everything to the west of Russia is unlikely to be part of any kind of connectivity which is led under Chinese control uh, for the near future. Uh, but that creates an incentive then for the Chinese to double down on other parts of the BRI. Uh, I think the Chinese will also be learning certain kinds of lessons from what has happened to Russia as a consequence of the Ukraine war, particularly the manner in which Russia's dollar reserves uh, in terms of sovereign assets 
have been more or less wiped out by mouth to mouth Chinese wouldn't want a similar situation to befall them and i'd imagine that you know the only way out of that kind of situation is to diversify into actual physical investments in other parts and the logical conclusion would be to look closer to the pri and uh, as you were saying many of these countries are going to be facing a severe economic crisis coming out of the effects of the pandemic the ukraine crisis the global inflation and at this point of time it's not very clear that even forums like g20 have any clear plan for debt rescheduling etc for many of these countries and in this context i think china remains an important alternative how much ever as ambassador saran says you know its presence might be resented in certain quarters uh, i think it remains a default option when it comes to economic aid for many of these countries so i wouldn't write off china so quickly jadmi uh, uh, in in some cases uh, we've seen th- that interest being renewed in the region professor raghavan you've also written in your book fierce enigmas which is really about the us's history with south asia uh, about the us's ebb and flow if you like in its interest in india's neighborhood but in the last year uh, we have seen the us come back very hard with its uh, mcc plan the millennium challenge cooperation plan for nepal a very high level visit to bangladesh after a very long time a new defense agreement with the maldives as well do you see us in south asia today as a kind of force multiplier for india's efforts or a rival uh, to china and in a sense to india i think it is a good thing that the united states is helping some of these uh, smaller south asian countries uh, get on their feet and be able to kind of resist chinese blandishments in various ways uh, at the same time i wouldn't uh, assume that the united states has too many interests at stake in south asia uh, i think the uh, smaller countries of south asia have only flickeringly mattered for the united states in the long run i don't see that changing particularly uh, over the next year. i mean even a country like afghanistan i mean you you can see how the united states has effectively dropped it like a hot potato and move on uh, for very negative consequences not just for afghanistan but for the region as a whole so i wouldn't uh, you know put too much emphasis on what the united states is doing yes in as much as it dovetails with india's interests and plans in the region i think it's something that new delhi will welcome uh, but a lot has to be done by india and that's where i think action should lie right ambassador sir do you think that uh, as professor raghavan says that the us is uh, uh interest in the region cannot be put too much store by would you agree or do you think it's more significant well i would be uh, somewhat more nuanced in that respect because um, you know if i look at for example the effort put in by uh, the united states uh, to get this 500 million mcc uh, uh, you know uh, deal through with uh, nepal um you know it it it's actually uh, actually seems to indicate <laughs> that certainly uh in on the periphery of china um us is interested in uh, maintaining and perhaps even expanding its presence perhaps um, you know in consultation or or in association uh, with india but um, that does speak to uh, a, an interest i would also say that there is uh, certainly an interest in the maritime uh, part of south asia whether it is uh, sri lanka or whether it is the maldives i think even though uh, us involvement may not have been so visible but certainly i think in terms of uh, encouraging india to take a uh, a larger role uh, or even working together with uh, japan uh, in this respect um does seem to indicate that uh, in some respects uh, the us 
uh, is uh, very much uh, interested in what happens in uh, South South Asia. Um, Pakistan, uh, you know, uh, did they have a role to play in the change in government? I do not know. But uh, certainly I see an interest on the part of the Pakistan army and I see an interest on the part of, you know, that the, the, the uh, Pakistani elite in keeping and refurbishing a relationship with the United States. I do perceive that there is a certain sense of discomfort of too much dependence on, on China. Uh, so uh, it is perhaps uh, somewhat more, as I said, uh, at the granular scale, it is a much more nuanced kind of picture, much more you know complex kind of picture than I would not say the U.S. has no interest in South Asia. I don't think that would be true. So that brings me to my next question, uh, Ambassador Sarin. And in your latest book, as I said, it's called How China Sees India and the World. Uh, it is the authoritative account of the India-China relationship. You've actually said that India has a better chance of meeting that China challenge if it remains committed to the values of its constitution, upholding democratic institutions, um, investing in its people, celebrating diversity and vibrant plural culture. Uh, there have been concerns about the authoritarian moves in India, what is called the autocratization, if you like, hypernationalism, the move towards a single party rule, uh, a kind of uh, virtual um, uh, ring around the media, around NGOs, a foreign policy that is seen much more important for domestic purposes. Uh, the question really is, is this trend going to make it that much more difficult for India to be a South Asian leader? Or is it just uh, becoming part of the other South Asian landscape where there are so many other authoritarian leaders? Well, I don't think uh, it should be our ambition to become a part of uh, that kind of a landscape in South uh, Asia. I think we have always uh, been able to uh, aspire to a leadership position precisely because uh, we have been a vibrant democracy. We have been able to demonstrate uh, our ability to handle incredible plurality, diversity in this uh, country. Uh, being able to, despite some setbacks here and there, to be able to maintain, uh, you know, very vibrant uh, political institutions, which are so important in order to anchor the domestic, uh, the democratic uh, spirit. Uh, so I would say that uh, any kind of, uh, you know, setback to that uh, is actually making, going to make any aspiration for regional leadership. And I would extend that to even, you know, regional and global leadership. Uh, if there is a, de uh, a deficit of democracy uh, in, in India, you know, that has been, as in a certain sense, uh, a USP of, of India. Uh, and uh, if uh, the kind of policies that uh, may be followed, uh, which, which uh, you know, uh, instigate uh, communalism, instigate... Uh, uh, you know, uh, lack of so social uh, cohesion in the country, uh, then, uh, you know, it would become very difficult to really uh, run any kind of foreign policy. Because if you're going to be so much preoccupied with your own domestic crises, whether they are economic crises, social crises, or political crises, uh, then how do you play uh, an external role? You know, that is something which should be quite uh, apparent. 
And I would repeat uh, something that I had uh, also earlier said that it is very important that you should not let domestic political compulsions begin to influence your external policies, which should be based on a much more, shall I say, uh, a, a sober calculation of uh, our our uh, you know national national interest. Uh, I know it is very difficult to have that kind of a clear division between uh, neighborhood policy and domestic policy, but that effort has to be made because any attempt to try and have a foreign policy that really is aligned with our national interest, with our security interests. Uh, it is it is good to be able to keep the uh, domestic political you know uh, compulsions aside. All right. Uh, short of that uh, kind of outcome where there is so much you know communalization inside India, it becomes difficult uh, for India to deal with its neighborhood the same way. Uh, Professor Raghavan, do you think? An authoritarian regime in India or an, an increasing autocratization actually makes any difference to the region? Are regional players that, I mean, um, countries in the region actually looking to India for that leadership? Well, I mean, whether countries in the region are looking to India for the leadership or not depends on the quality of India's democratic uh, growth, its economic prosperity and so on. Uh, but I think the more important question is about uh, that we need to recognize that, you know, the ethnic landscape of South Asia does not follow its political boundaries. Uh, you know, we may assume that there are some things that we do in India which are purely aimed at domestic audience, but it will have a knock on impact in terms of what, uh, how our neighbors perceive it, how they react to it. And we've seen it not just today, but over the decades. Uh, so, for instance, if the you know, Indian government decides to pursue a certain kind of amendment to the Citizenship Act, it is bound to have implications and consequences across the region. Uh, if, you know, religious majoritarianism under the sort of name of electoral dominance is given free license in India, you can be almost sure that it will have negative consequences in other parts of the region. Uh, and I think there's just no escaping this because the ethnic sort of map of South Asia is not exactly aligned with its political map. And the destiny of the region, in some deeper sense, actually hangs together. So I think it's very important, therefore, that we realize that not only is it not possible to ring fence uh, our domestic politics and foreign policy, but our domestic politics has a direct repercussion on our ability to play a constructive role in the region. Uh, so does our economic policy, actually. I mean, and I think at this point of time, India's economic position clearly is in no shape to enable it to play a serious leadership role in the region. So I think we need a real stock taking of where we are and where we want to go within South Asia as well. All right, then that really does lead to the, uh, the last question I had for both of you. Um, we're looking at the eighth year of No Sock Summit. Uh, BIMSTEC has met, but it doesn't seem to have much ripple effect really in the region. BBIN is a really tiny subgroup. Uh, and even going by that small ambition has not brought everyone on board when it comes, for example, to the motor vehicle uh, agreement. Uh, so my question is, what does India need to do to reimagine its region as a whole? Does it need a new organization? Does it need a broader uh, swathe of uh, countries to be included? What does it need to do, uh, Professor Raghavan? Well, in terms of what policies it should follow, I'll lead Ambassador Saran to sort of, you know, talk about it. He, he's much more conversant. But I think there is got to be a broader shift in the way that we think about the region. 
Uh, for instance, there are deeper challenges that you know we are only now coming to grips with. Uh, climate change, for instance. You know, uh, Ambassador Saran has written about this in the past that the environmental destiny of South Asia hangs or falls together. Again, just like you know the question about ethnicity, these are not things that can be segregated into national boundaries and their effects can be controlled. So when we are thinking about these kinds of challenges which lie ahead of us and are going to be extremely severe for this region, uh, and South Asia is very vulnerable to the sort of you know uh, changing sort of problems uh, brought about by climate change. We have to take a broader view of what we want to do and what kinds of challenges the region faces beyond political compulsions of the here and now. Uh, similarly, I would say that you know the conversation also needs to broaden out and deepen out beyond just the government level. Uh, I think we need a much more deeper engagement at the level of civil society, even at very localized kind of uh, levels between India and its neighbors, because only then will we be able to act in ways that are meaningful to the peoples of the region as a whole. All right. Uh, Ambassador Saran, I'll leave that last word to you. Then what does India need to do to reimagine this South Asian region? Well, I would like to uh, endorse what uh, Shinath just uh, said. Uh, on uh, BBIN, uh, you know, when we don't have South Asia-wide, uh, you know, cooperation in any form, I think we should welcome uh, BBIN, uh, even if it is not uh, a particularly ambitious, uh, you know, project. Uh, the fact is that, for example, with respect to the energy market, uh, it has made uh, substantive uh, progress, particularly with respect to uh, Nepal, uh, Bhutan and uh, Bangladesh. I mean, we are a major supplier of uh, power now to uh, Bangladesh. Uh, more recently, there has been uh, also progress in terms of inland water uh, transportation and uh, in and trying to revive uh, river navigation uh, in the northeast, uh, both for Bangladesh as well as for uh, India's uh, whole northeast. Uh, so uh, we should welcome, you know, these uh, these uh, uh, modest uh, uh, achievements. I would say, but they are they at least point to uh, you know the potential uh, for regional cooperation to deliver benefits uh, all uh, around. Now, with regard to how we should be, you know, taking taking uh, regional cooperation uh, forward, um, I do not think that the current uh, sort of approach of marginalizing SARC and you know trying to give priority to Bimstek uh, is such a good idea. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, Bimstek should not be pursued. Please pursue it for its own uh, merits, uh, but I think that cannot be a substitute uh, for. A, a regional uh, South Asia regional, uh, you know, cooperative uh, forum. And in that respect, in the absence of any other platform, uh, I think SAAD is still uh, the best platform to try and pursue uh, such regional cooperation, uh, even though it is uh, somewhat hard. The other aspect, of course, is that, uh, you know, India being the largest country in the region, uh, actually that asymmetry of power, whether it is economic power or political power or, you know, uh, military power, that is actually an asset. Because I have uh, argued in the past that even if India were to open up its market to whatever our neighbors are able to produce and sell, it will still be a tiny fraction of the Indian market. Even if you said, as far as the transport network is concerned, that our neighbors can use any transportation, you know, uh, network that they wish uh, for trading with each other or, you know, uh, doing their export-import trade, 
would it really uh, in any way overburden our transportation network it would not so the idea should be how do we work out policies which then present india as the preferred partner uh, for our region uh, for all our neighbors uh, how do we uh, ensure that uh, india in a true sense using that asymmetry becomes a real engine of growth for the entire region well, that is the future that we should be looking for thank you right uh, and on that note i will I, i will leave this very very interesting conversation india must accept its geography seek to to derive from the benefits of the asymmetry in the region uh, but above all stay very engaged in south asia i'd like to thank ambassador shamsaran professor shrinath raghavan for joining us if you've been listening this is the hindus the parley podcast thank you for joining us